and welcome to Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast with Renee Hanvin, which is all about inspiring you to start thinking and doing disasters a little bit differently too. In this episode, I'm talking with Natalie Eggleton, CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, or FRRR, and we're talking about strengthening rural, regional and remote communities. Now, a little bit about Natalie. Natalie Eggleton is passionate about facilitating effective responses to issues facing rural communities. She was appointed CEO of the FRRR in November 2015 after joining the organisation in 2012, and she's responsible for shaping FRRR's strategy, designing new programs, and developing and nurturing new funding partnerships. In her previous roles with FRRR, she was responsible for managing natural disaster recovery and preparedness programs, as well as those addressing social innovation. Before joining FRRR, Natalie consulted with Matrix on Board, working with numerous not-for-profit organisations in program evaluation, undertaking research analysis and developing business plans. She also worked with clients to develop financial policies and procedures, strategic plans, organisation reviews, service mapping, feasibility studies and governance models. Natalie has also held in-house roles at Evolve or Typo Station and at ANZ Banking Group, implementing projects that made a tangible difference to the lives of people living in rural, regional and remote Australia. She lives in the small rural town of Malden in central Victoria. Now, I always like to start with where we met. So I first met Natalie when I worked at Australia Post and I was leading the community response to disasters pretty much a decade ago now. One of the events I attended in the early days was the FRRR's annual conference. Back then, I was one of only a very few number of corporates in the room. And I have to say what the FRRR does and the passion from its leadership team was definitely a big part of wanting to learn more and do more in the disaster space. So I guess I've known Natalie for nearly a decade now, and it's always really great to catch up and have a conversation with her. Natalie has been a great supporter of me and my corporate to community and other initiatives for, yep, a bit over a decade now. Natalie, thanks so much for chatting with me today. It's really great to have you on and share what you're doing at the FRRR. So can I start by asking, what is the FRRR and what impact have you had on communities around rural, regional and remote Australia? Thanks, Renee. It is excellent to be with you. So the FRRR, the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, um, is a philanthropic foundation. We're focused on connecting goodwill with good purpose to strengthen the vitality of remote, rural and regional Australia. So we do that primarily by providing grant funding. We also broker partnerships and resources between communities and funders. Um, And we develop and share insights and learning from communities to inform um, policymakers and funding bodies of the needs And importantly, the solutions um, that are available in response to a lot of the challenges being experienced by remote rural and regional communities. So we've been in operation for 21 years now. uh, And in that time, we've distributed over $115 million to around 12,000 projects across the country. Yeah, so it's growing. And that, you know, there's just so much impact in all of those 12,000 initiatives over that period of time. And Um, you know, they all uh, tend to have ripple effects um, and uh, they're typically reasonably small amounts of money provided into initiatives that benefit um, multiple parts of the community and really work to strengthen um, the resilience of those communities. So they're quite diverse. They're all community-led and they all share an underlying outcome about strengthening resilience and strengthening the capacity of communities to seed ideas and to adapt and evolve with change um, and to innovate them into their futures. 
as I said in the intro um, for this episode, Natalie, I mean, I've known FRRR for over a decade and, um, you know, I often say it's the small things that make the biggest difference. And I have not literally have not been into a regional community that hasn't had some connection with the FRRR or a grant program or some, you know, change uh, opportunities. So again, those small things, particularly in those regional and rural communities can make the biggest difference. And it's, it's, um, it's such a great initiative and, and program and outcomes that you deliver to. So in your, um, I guess, the overview of the FRRR, you say that you're focused on grant making, enabling and influencing. So why are each of those needed or important? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I guess for, for FRRR, our vision is for a vibrant, resilient and revitalised remote, rural and regional Australia. Um, and we think achieving that vision requires a multifaceted and a deeply collaborative approach. Um, so we've developed a, a model of philanthropy and a strategy that deploys resources against those three kind of capabilities. Um, so I can go into them each a little bit if you like. Yeah, please. Um, so firstly, for, you know, grants are they're a great tool for supporting the activation of community plans and ideas or, you know, filling gaps that exist in communities. Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, the, the money is the tool that enables a lot of things to happen, but the, the grant is, um, you know, it's an activator of sorts. Um, so I guess we think about our role, um, you know, in offering those resources as being that sort of activation tool. Um, so, you know, we, we know that in smaller and more remote communities in particular, um, grassroots organisations and community groups that are typically volunteer run or, um, you know, pretty small and community-based can experience barriers to accessing funding that's really suited to their needs and their scale. So our grants are really about responding to that inequity uh, of opportunities and access to funding. Um, but also facilitating um, action and activation of um, initiatives from the ground up within communities that build those broad outcomes that I mentioned before. Um, so that's kind of the granting side. The second part around the leveraging or enabling, as you described it, is that FRRR, I always call this the boring but important part of FRRR, has a, a special <laughs> listing in the Tax Act of the DGR1 oh. charity. <laughs> okay, yeah, on um, board, Tax Act, no more. I know, so <laughs> <laughs> um, But essentially that DGR listing enables FRRR to work across all of the charitable categories, so from, you know, health, wellbeing, um, education, environment, um, including economic development, um, but it also enables us um, specifically to broker partnerships between funders and communities, which is primarily done through community foundation partnerships and other place-based not-for-profit organisations that don't have DGR1 status. So FRRR can actually leverage funding and broker funding um, by using our DGR1 status and offer donors the tax deductibility um, and provide a commitment to those donors that we will um, provide those funds to our partners um, within those community foundations or place-based organisations. So it's about, um, you know, really brokering more resourcing and more funding that would otherwise not be accessible by those organisations. So it's a really an, an enabling role and one that we can play a strategic linkage piece in, creates efficiencies, creates confidence for donors, um, you know, makes it more profile and awareness of those organisations that are otherwise reasonably invisible to the donor community um, and obviously gets more money into their hands to do great work. Um, and so the third part of the, the model is the insights and learning, which is really about recognising that, um, you know, the, the projects that we're supporting and those partnerships and relationships that we broker um, and facilitate, you know, there's absolute gold in that in terms of what it says about um, 
the solutions that exist within rural communities to some of our you know, quite macro challenges, if we think about climate change and climate solutions, or if we think about um, equitable access to services in remote areas, or if we think about disaster resilience and preparedness. You know, we know that through all of those 12,000 projects we've supported, um, there's deep knowledge and wisdom that's come from the ground up in communities, that comes from lived experience, that comes from testing, piloting, seeding, um, and kind of expanding and scaling initiatives. And so we've, we've got a role as a national organisation that sort of straddles the um, sectors of philanthropy, government, business and community and not-for-profits um, to harness that, the insights that come from all of that work and use that to um, share back up the line to policymakers or to those wanting to fund and invest in regional communities and, I guess, provide guidance on what works well um, as well as what the challenges are and, and what some of the areas that need attention are. To me, FRR has always been that kind of well-rounded and real advocate and supporter of regional and rural and remote communities. And I think, um, you know, even outside of the disaster space, you've got so many programs to strengthen and build social capital, et cetera. So why is the FRR different to other not-for-profits in the disaster space? It's, yeah, it's a really busy space, isn't it? There's a lot of These organisations. Days. <laughs> yeah, there's just a, um, and every time we have a major disaster, it seems to have that kind of period of time where there is, um, you know, a significant amount of interest and energy and then it kind of settles back down again. Um, and I think we're in that space at the moment where there's a heightened um, interest following the summer, black summer bushfires in particular and the floods in New South Wales. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to kind of understand how to do, you know, how to work effectively in a coordinated way. Um, so to your question, I think that that's FRRR's difference, um, is that FRRR is actually structured, constituted to be a coordinating mechanism um, and to reduce some of the complexity and some of the challenges for communities in accessing philanthropic funding. Um, so essentially, you know, FRRR acts as a trusted partner with communities and we've always, you know, got our ear to the ground. I think importantly, we're always there regardless of whether there's a disaster or not. And that's one of the, um, you know, you just mentioned that we do a lot of other programs um, that are nothing to do with disasters, but it means that when something does happen, we've already got some engagement or some relationships and, you know, activity that we've probably been doing. Um, so that sort of means that there's just a confidence and a continuity um, and we've got structures and processes that are easy to sort of scale up or down. But the other, the other side of that is that our, our model is really strength, you know, really focused on, you know, enabling funders to give with confidence and know where their money's going and know that it's going to the right places. So we, we sort of act as a bit of a backbone um, for those wanting to give during disasters in a different way to the likes of the Red Cross or others who are um, playing a more direct um, role. Ours is about getting the money and the funding to local community groups and local community organisations and local community leaders so that they can actually be in charge of the recovery or in charge of their preparedness efforts um, to a degree, greater degree. Uh, I was just going to say that I guess the, the focus of the work is also um, about strengthening community level resilience. And so from that perspective, we work um, through what we think of as a cycle of development, um, which includes periodic shocks such as natural disasters. So we, we kind of approach our work from the perspective of communities always going through cycles. Um, and at, you know, in any given year, most rural communities will be in either you know, recovery from a natural disaster or um, experiencing a disaster like a prolonged drought or they will be getting ready for the next one. 
Um, and so there's always a cycle going on there, but there are other um, influences and shocks and stresses that are also playing a part in that um, community's context, which um, you know, we need to be tuned into as well and make sure that what we're providing support for is relevant to that context and that place. I've you know, known the FRRR for a long time now. And again, you know, you mentioned before that it's, it's, you work from that ground up. And I think that's so important. And obviously in the disaster space with the community led recovery and resilience, you know, it's always, um, it's great to say, but then there needs to be ways to enable communities to do that. So the grants programs that you run are so great because it again enables the small things to have big impacts, but also the communities to, you know, to the extent of what they can and the capabilities that they have to kind of evolve their capabilities and skills and, and focus on what's important to them and, you know, build that resilience as well as recovery, which I think I've seen and noticed that FRRR's kind of evolved into the resilience space again, a bit like me, sort of <laughs> a few years before um, the word became the buzzword. But, you know, I think you mentioned um the fact that FRRR is known in the communities. And so what what are the why is the FRRR like so important to those communities? So from the community side. Mm. And I think rural communities need champions and they need advocates. They need their voices to be amplified to the audiences that matter. <clears throat> and it's not that they can't do it themselves because they absolutely can. Um, so it's more about, you know, walking alongside them and being that champion um, and not speaking for them or on behalf of them, but hearing what they say and relaying that. And I, I guess the reality is that all rural, remote and regional communities are experiencing increasing frequency and severity of natural disasters. We know that. We know that there are climate change impacts that are you know, leading to, to really extreme weather events in greater frequency. And it's also true, um, as I mentioned earlier, that there's in inequity in the levels of funding that is directed to communities. And particularly, you know, when we think about funding and donations directed to communities impacted by disasters, um, there's great inequity. There was very little funding, you know, contributed after the New South Wales floods, the current um, experience of the storms in Victoria, you know, there's been very little attention and very little funding, but the impacts are, are terrible. Mm. So they need organisations like FRRR who are going to be there no matter what and who will be, you know, working alongside them um, regardless of how much public attention and again, the the trust that the FRRR has in the communities, you know, you're there for the good times um, and the bad times too, and you can't you can't buy that and you can't beat that. So it's such an important organisation for um, the communities in many ways who need it the most. Now, um, what kind of change, or I guess, what's the future evolution? And you've just had a new branding, a rebranding, which I love. Yeah. It's a great, um, a great fresh um, look and approach because your old branding was there pretty much since the day I first connected with the organisation. So it's a beautiful, refreshed um, branding and approach. So what, what kind of change is FRRR aiming to drive in the disaster and the resilience space moving forward? Is there something that you're kind of evolving to do or achieve or deliver? Mm. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for noticing the branding. The original branding had been there since the organization's establishment. So 20 yeah. years that logo hung around. <laughs> so well yeah, and truly time. had its time. Um, and we too, yeah, we think the new look and feel was just fresh and forward looking and contemporary and all things that rural Australia is. So in terms of our, you know, future directions, um, you know, we remain committed to all of the principles we've always worked on, which is, um, you know, that community-led practice working with really serious authenticity and integrity and um, working at the pace that communities are interested in and willing to work at and bolstering, you know, their efforts in the best ways we can. 
when it comes to the disaster recovery and resilience space, we're still really committed to um, the value of the medium to long-term recovery. And we think that that's critical. And we've been really pleased to see some, you know, shifting around the recognition um, of the, the true, um, you know, timescale of recovery um, and the true appreciation of, you know, it being really a lifelong experience, not just a two, three year rebuild and move on experience. Um, so, you know, we will continue to work in that space and, and continue to provide funding that is targeted to that medium to long term recovery, which, you know, has a, an underlying principle about the, um, you know, the, the longer term change and evolution that happens through recovery as well. But on the other side is an increased, um, an increased uh, focus on preparedness and really trying to foster and build up the authorization of community-led preparedness processes and linking those community-led processes into the, the formal emergency management system and really giving it authority and validation. Um, so we've been doing some really promising work in New South Wales over the last few years and are kind of getting started on some in Victoria. Um, and, um, you know, we've been supporting the communities after the 2009 bushfires, you know, since then as well, and there's some really good evidence emerging, you know, from that work over that long period of time about effectiveness of allowing those community-led processes to be formalised and what that means when a disaster does happen um, in terms of the ability for that community to respond well um, and activate and mobilise the systems effectively and, and recover better. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the whole preparedness and resilience um, from a preparedness perspective is you know it's, it's vital so the findings in that no doubt it will be yeah super interesting to kind of see because I think that's almost what's missing in many ways although there's lots of you know documents and reporting to say that a dollar invested before saves $14 after but I think it's it's more than just the money it's the you know lives and livelihoods and and just you know environmental impacts etc so mm. more uh, evidence-based around supporting the preparedness um, can only be a good and a beneficial thing. So can I ask you, we've mentioned about how you sort of act as a bit of a conduit, I guess, for philanthropic funders, et cetera, and that, but you also work in, you know me, my whole passion is um, the business sector or business community. So you obviously work with uh, corporates and private sector as well. How do you, how does FRRR work with um, the private sector? Mm, yeah, we have a, a range of different partnership um, approaches, I suppose. Um, we really appreciate that there, the business sector is not homogenous. And so, you know, everything from the small businesses, SMEs, through to the, the major large corporates, um, all have different needs, different interests, different stakeholders, different employee bases, you know. So it's about trying to work out what's right for them. And, you know, if they've got an interest in um, providing funding or volunteer support or skilled support or whatever it is into regional communities, um, you know, our, our approach starts with, okay, so what would that look like for you and um, what are the tangible things you're looking for and how does that link with your strategy and, um, and then do, what do we have in existence that might actually align really well with that that we could enable? Um, so I'm not sure if I'm allowed to drop names here, but I'll... <laughs> I'll mention a couple if that's all right. Um, sure. So an example was we'd been speaking with the Kellogg's Foundation for a while and, you know, they had just re refined their strategy. It wasn't specifically around disasters. It was around food security, um, which we know is a big issue in disaster settings anyway. Um, yep. And, you know, we we had a few conversations where we, we sort of got to know each other's strategies and discovered that actually we've got a, a program that they could fund into and that could... Um, you know, leverage their funding quite substantially. Um, so that was one mechanism. In other cases, um, you know, we um, 
design bespoke programs with corporates. Um, so we've had a number over the over the years. Um, the longest running was the ANZ Seeds of Renewal program, which is mm-hmm. I shouldn't say because it's it's still running. That's been going for 20 years. Um, we run that as a fully branded grant program that we administer. We do all of the community outreach and engagement, um, and ANZ um, contribute. Um, obviously the funding, but also, um, you know, their branch network and, um, you know, really get the word out there and it enables a great connection for their staff um, within the communities they're working in um, and opportunities for them to really feel connected to the, the company, but also know that they're giving is being done well yeah yeah from I guess from the corporate side too and having been at Australia Post and also consulting into corporates I mean you know I've mentioned we've talked about this a lot in advance there's there's so much that corporates can do and it's 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 obviously money but more than money as well I think the skill sets and the capabilities that corporates have you know um there's not I'm not saying that there's not a lot of internal understanding as to the benefits it can provide, but I think there's a there's a long way to go for, you know, corporates to really evolve. So organisations like Kellogg's or ANZ, et cetera, who recognise and, and want to collaborate to create an outcome that delivers is, you know, it's the way to go. And there's benefit, obviously, for the corporate side of the fence as well as the communities. Now, mm. we um, both started doing a bit of work under the public-private partnerships uh, network, I guess it was back then, just after the bushfires. I mean, you know, we very quickly put together some working groups and um, in Melbourne and Sydney and whatnot between government, private and philanthropic, which, you know, had really great feedback. Do you see that there's an opportunity for more of those kinds of things going forward about bringing, you know, the key stakeholder groups together to collaborate on shared outcomes? Yeah, I think, and it was really great to work with you on getting that up and running so quickly after the fires and it's great to see that it's endured um, for this long. I think it is, I mean, it's important from a principal's perspective um, that those working to support communities in their recovery um, should be coordinated as much as they can be in order to reduce burden on those communities and ensure that what is being provided is done in a way that is, you know, as seamless as possible, as informed um, as possible and, and clearly as collaborative as possible. Um, it's easier said than done to actually get traction and get outcomes Um, and when you've got so many jurisdictions and in such a chaotic space in terms of you know the early relief and recovery and just you know so particularly like summer fires where there was just such widespread impact you know it's a complex but I think the you know it's better to at least try and to stay at the table than to not in the first instance Um, I think in terms of the outcomes though the the really important thing is to find the points in the system where coordination is possible. And I think that's what we could do better going forward and we haven't quite mastered. I think one of the challenges is all of the different organisations are putting together their programs and their initiatives and they're scheduling them and then they put them out and we haven't actually consulted each other about how we could have done that in a more seamless way. So you end up with communities being overwhelmed by multiple funding opportunities coming at them at once with deadlines that are very close um, and, you know, not much resourcing to attend to it all. So that's, I think, something I would really love to see being done better. We're giving it a crack in the south coast of New South Wales at a very sort of initial level with a group of funders. So I think, you know, it's probably easier done on a more localised level than it is on a national level one. You know, it's probably an opportunity for organisations like ours and like this network to sort of pilot some ways of doing that. But the, the coordination piece is critical. Um, whether we can truly collaborate is is potentially a different question, but certainly if we're thinking about the collaboration spectrum, 
coordination is where we can easily start and at least share information more effectively and make the access to information easier for people in communities too. Yeah, correct. And I think, I know, I mean, we've obviously won some grant programs under the um, federal and state um, BC RRF fund. And all we hear from uh, New South Wales at the moment is it's gone from grant writing fatigue to grant uh, program delivery overwhelm. There seems to be Mm. too much money being given out for the you know, ability to comprehend what it is and then find the project managers to deliver it. And it's 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 kind of gone from one, I guess, one problem to the other, which hopefully will have, you know, wonderful outcomes. Um, but also there's a finite time for it all to be delivered. And it's, you know, grant upon, it's like grant upon grant upon grant, which is, you know, a bit of a challenge. So that's, yeah, that's a great initiative to mm. end, you know, as we, as we talk about often, there are little kind of, I guess, gaps in the process or, or consequences that might necessarily have been considered in the process that, you know, the likes of FRRR and I know at C2C, that's what we try to do too, is sort mm. of fill the gaps to, to make the outcome as best as possible. Now, you might have just answered one of these, but I also um, finish up with the same question. So what would be the two things you'd like to be done differently in the disaster space? Hmm. Only two, Natalie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Only two. (laughs) Look, I I think I did just answer some of it, the coordination piece, and I know the new national agency is very committed to this coordination piece, but it has to be you know, heavily informed by the local level and, um, you know, the lived experience. So that's that's one piece that I think we may never get 100% right, but if there's good intention around it, it will help. One of the other things is is probably the continued challenge around timing of funding, and it's, it's linked to the, the challenge and the dynamic of pressure to get money out the door quickly and make things happen and the clear need for there to be support provided to communities with the reality and you've just described it in terms of that overwhelm and that overload, um, the reality of how long this stuff actually takes and, you know, finding ways to actually map the system so that we understand which bits should be put in early and which bits should actually be more patient and long-term and not rushing communities to do projects within 12 months. You know, if it's going to take three years, let's, you know, let's let it take three years. So I think there's a, a big piece about that sort of funding system that I would love to see change and we're certainly doing our bit to... Um, yeah, agree. And I think the timing's really interesting too, because again, as we've spoken about quite often is, you know, every community is different and then, you know, every community goes at its own pace and it's had different impacts, but it's also having a different response in the re- recovery or even in, you know, the preparedness or resilience building as well. So mm-hmm. no two communities are the same. So to put them all in a, in a kind of pot of money that if they don't apply for it, they miss out. But then if they do apply for it, they're not necessarily ready to actually activate it. Um, so it's you know it's part yeah. of I guess the bigger the bigger kind of process and again yeah some um, there's a few few things we could kind of work on um, to evolve but um, Natalie thanks so much uh, for your time in this episode I've been talking with Natalie Eggleton the CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal or the FRRR and we've been talking about strengthening rural regional and remote communities Natalie thanks so much thanks for having me that's the end of this episode of Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast, which I hope you found to be relevant, informative and inspiring. If you're interested in participating in the conversation or to connect with me personally, please visit corporate2community.com. Until the next episode, stay safe and remember we all have a role to play 
in thinking differently and doing differently before, during and after disasters. Thank you.